Hi, beautiful people. My name is Brenda Davies. I'm the creator and host of the podcast and YouTube in the gray. And today we are talking to Baz Chavigian, an attorney who's devoted his life to representing survivors of sexual abuse. Baz is the father of two daughters, the grandson of Billy Graham, and a person who's made it his mission to seek justice against the perpetrators as well as the institutions who fail to protect the victims of sexual abuse. I'm honored to share this conversation today. Boz and I discuss his work, why monetary compensation matters, and how you can better recognize abuse and advocate for the protection and justice that survivors deeply deserve. This is a conversation I find fascinating for many reasons, but also because Boz's work and advocacy really align with where I intend to go with this next season of In the Gray. So to give context for that statement, I'm going to share a personal story here, but if you'd rather skip ahead to the interview, I will have it timestamped below. So as many of my beautiful people know, about six months ago, I went pretty silent and made some vague comments about my son Valentine being hospitalized. And initially, this was deeply private. His medical history was something Valentine's dad and I really wanted to keep between us as a family. But in light of some recent events, we actually got together and decided it would be valuable to share some of these stories. And the reason I'm going to tell you more about this now is twofold. The first reason Valentine's dad and I decided to share this is because we actually had a harrowing, nightmarish experience advocating for our son's life at a local LA hospital. My hope is that by being more transparent about our experiences and what we went through will help initiate conversations with both parents and healthcare professionals to see if we can figure out how to make this very broken American healthcare system work better collectively for all of us. And two, my son's health ordeal was instrumental, if not the sole reason why I decided to pivot and change the way I do my work here. So God is Gray, or season one, if you will, is something that I consider a project of mine. This was really sharing my experiences of what it was to walk out of toxic evangelical theology. And I am enormously grateful that that work resonates with so many of you. I really hope that those videos and conversations continue to inspire people and free people from toxic theology. And I am immensely grateful that that work brought all of you beautiful people into my life. However, towards the end of God is Gray, I got into this somewhat reluctant pattern where I felt like I was running out or had run out of things to say about evangelicalism and Christianity, but I was too afraid to stop. I intuitively really felt to the depth of my soul that my confession that I had an abortion was to be the last video, that that was like the period at the end of this beautiful project I had done, but I was so afraid to stop because I was afraid of losing my career and my voice, and I was afraid of losing you beautiful people. So one afternoon, I was reluctantly working on this video where I would be calling out Mega Pastor Brian Houston for allegedly covering up his late father's crimes against children. I took a break, I swooped up my baby Valentine, 
And it was at this moment that I realized that he had this sudden asymmetry in his jaw. We rushed him to urgent care, hoping that it would be something minor, but we quickly learned that it was a rapidly growing tumor, and it was growing visually about a half inch every day and inching closer and closer to his airway, so it was life-threatening. As I mentioned, we had a truly horrific, horrendous time at this first hospital, so we were fighting upstream, and then we finally got transferred to Children's in Los Angeles. They were amazing. They diagnosed the tumor as benign, and they got him on outpatient chemotherapy, and we have been doing those treatments ever since. In future conversations about healthcare, I'll be happy to get more into the nitty-gritty of this story, but the reason I'm sharing this experience now for this video and why it's relevant with this Boz Chivijian conversation and where we're going within the gray is because it was in Children's Hospital, sitting at this cafeteria table with my Brian Houston script, that I suddenly realized for me personally, I didn't want to go about my work the way that I had been. I had seen a priest with a gray face go up the elevator and read a child their last rites. I had tried to fight for my son's life in this system that was not working efficiently, to put it gently, and I'd been exposed to death and childhood illness in a way that I never had before, I suddenly felt like this Brian Houston video could just as easily have been me saying, hi, beautiful people, Brian Houston's an asshole, please like, subscribe, share with your friends, etc. I just, for me personally, no longer believed that that sort of video was going to instigate the change that I truly want to see in the world. At the time, when I was in the hospital, I thought I was going to do a two-week hiatus, which is wild. I really thought that I could just plow through this medical emergency with Valentine and keep doing my work, but that quickly shifted, and I really felt, as a spiritual person, as a Christian, that God was reckoning and doing something inside of me. I really began to shift my perspective and think, okay, we know what's wrong with a lot of these systems. I've called out a lot of things that I find horrendous and inappropriate, things that are actually crimes. But what can we do to humanize these situations, to get on the same page, and again, really instigate and advocate for true change? So, for example, the approach I'm going to take is to dive into each subject from multiple points of view. That's why this channel is called In the Gray. So we will take an interview with Aaron Smallhands Thompson, the porn star, who's having a wonderful time doing sex work. But that will not be the end of the conversation. We have another conversation with a working class sex worker who has a different point of view. I'd also like to talk to traffic victims or people who have had horrendous experiences, people who work in porn, people who work on a street, anything we can do to broaden and expand our view, look at the gray, look at the entire picture of one solitary issue that is so massive and figure out where we land. This to me is how we can instigate true change and I frankly would really like to have fun and some levity while doing it. It'll take way more than one conversation or one person's perspective or one video from me 
to really understand what needs to be done to advocate for people, to humanize them, and to push progress forward. In the Gray, for me, is going to be a place where you really see me grow and expand and learn in real time. And my hope is that you will grow and learn and expand with me. This conversation with Boz is definitely on the heavier side, but the thing I love about it is that Boz offers actionable statements. He gives hope. He validates the experience of sexual abuse survivors, and that is something that is so deeply valuable to me. The last thing I'll say is please, for the love of God, do not consider this video an admonishment to how any other creator does their work. I am simply here telling you my story for anyone who is curious about why God is Gray ended and is considered a project that's done versus why I chose to pivot in the Gray this is my explanation for it. Valentine and what he went through really inspired me, really made me want to press in and figure out how to invite a broader audience to these conversations, how to invite people with different or even opposing perspectives of me into this conversation with the goal being let's learn, expand, and grow together. That's really all I want to do here on In the Gray. So without further ado, please like, subscribe, share with your friends, donate to my Patreon or Venmo if you can, and do enjoy this conversation with the wonderful Baz Chivijian. Hello, beautiful people. Today we are talking to Baz Chivijian. You got it. Tell us about yourself, Baz. Well, it's uh, great to be here, uh, Brenda. I, um, I don't know. It's, I'm not sure what to say. It's sort of boring, but I guess I would say that I'm a lawyer. Um, what I'm doing now is I represent uh, sexual abuse survivors around the country, along with other lawyers, um, in lawsuits against both perpetrators and institutions who fail to protect them. Mm. A lot of times, uh, those who've been sexually victimized don't realize that, uh, yeah, there are criminal cases that tend to focus on the actual perpetrator and an ultimate you know, the ultimate objective in a criminal case would be to, to punish the perpetrator, usually by, you know, sending them to prison. But oftentimes, at least in the cases that I deal with, a lot of these perpetrators are um, on church staff. They're working for youth service organizations. And the question then becomes, okay, once the perpetrator goes to prison or is criminally charged, um, does the institution have any type of legal responsibility to the victim? And oftentimes the answer to that is yes. And so my law firm uh, holds these institutions um, responsible in a, in a court of law, um, in a civil court of law, which ultimately, hopefully not only brings uh, some justice to my clients, but also brings them compensation as well. Yes. I love all of that. I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing. And also I am curious to hear a little bit of justification about the monetary gain that someone would have potentially from being involved with you, because I heard you mention in an interview that that is a piece of justice. Like, do you believe sure. that monetary, not reward, but compensation yeah. is a piece of justice that's crucial? Yeah, I think so. I mean, one of the, one, one of the reasons why is that is just the way the system is. I mean, the way the civil system is set up is that's what it offers. You know, if you go to trial and you have a jury rule in your favor, the most the civil system can provide you is money. Yeah. Um, so that's so number one, that's the framework in which we're working in. But but secondly, 
I can't tell you how many of my clients, how many survivors I meet on a regular basis who have expended thousands upon thousands of dollars trying to get help, mm. who've lost out on job promotions, who've lost out on jobs because of the trauma that they are still continuing to try to process. And then there's uh, many who who need therapy, who need trauma-informed therapy, who can't afford it. And so they've spent years going without the very therapy that they need to help heal. And all of that takes money. And so oftentimes, especially the cases I deal with it within the Christian context, people almost tend to feel guilty asking for money. And I say, no, I mean, you are entitled to that. You deserve that. The church or the institution should have come to you without a lawsuit. They should have come to you regardless and said, what can we do financially to help you as you heal? And uh, more oftentimes they don't. And so we've got to go to court and and have a court direct and order them to to pay that money um, or if, if we don't settle it before a, a before trial. So yeah, money is, you know, money's important. It's not the end all be all. I think oftentimes I tell my clients, Regard, we can't control the outcome. I cannot control what ultimately happens in this case, but the very fact that you hired a lawyer, that that lawyer with you by his or her side forced this organization to come to court and answer for their failures is already a win, in my opinion. Yes, I love that. And I know you practice in the state of Florida. Is there a statute of limitations on a civil case? I, I'm sure there's more sure. statute of limitations on criminal cases. Is it the same? Yeah, so I, I practice across the country. In Florida, where I, I am a Florida lawyer, um, there are statutes of limitations, both criminal and civilly. Outside the state, when I handle a case outside the state, what I do is I associate with a local lawyer who also handles this type of work, and that person sponsors me to work inside that state for just that case. Amazing. Um, so I have a lot, you know, cases, North Carolina, New York, Wisconsin, California, uh, and, and Florida, of course. But you're right, statute limit, statutes of limitations are really important because what they are for, for your viewers who may not understand is or know is statute of limitations basically is a law that says that you have a certain period of time from the moment that you were injured or the 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 uh, the criminal act, um, you have a certain period of time to bring that case to court. Now, they have criminal statute limitations, but there's also civil statute limitations. And so, you know, if you don't bring that case to court within a, that certain period of time, the doors of the courthouse get shut. And so, survivors around the country find themselves who you know they've been traumatized. It takes years, oftentimes, for a survivor to even get to a point of thinking about going to court, let alone even disclosing what happened to them. And so oftentimes when they finally make that decision, they are only to be informed that, that while you're beyond the statute of limitations, the doors have shut. The good thing, the good news is that there are a number of states in the last few years that have completely changed their statutes of limitations as it relates to sexual abuse and primarily child sexual abuse cases. Thank God. Um, Yeah. So they've extended it. And one of the unique things, and you see this you saw this in New York, New Jersey, North Carolina. We just see uh, Colorado and Arkansas and Louisiana do this as well as they created these look back windows without getting too lawyerly for a moment. Let me just say this. Um, a statute, when a statute of limitations law is changed, that, that change applies to anybody abused on the day that the law was signed into, uh, the bill was signed into law forward. But what about all the people 
before that law was changed. And they go, wow, that's great for people moving forward, but what about us? Well, these look-back windows have all, many of these states have included these look-back windows with these changes to the statute of limitations, which a look-back window says, listen, you, you're beyond the old statute of limitations. The new statute of limitations does not apply to you. However, we're going to create a one or two or even three-year look-back window that says, listen, for one to two to three years, a window is going to open for those who've been abused beforehand. And you have one or two or three years to file a lawsuit. And then that window is going to shut. And so, for example, North Carolina just had a, a two, I think it was a two-year window, just shut on December 31st. New York had a window uh, that was open for almost two years that shut uh, a few months ago. So did New Jersey. So for those survivors who are going, wow, this is, I'm glad for the statute of limitations changes for, for victims in the future. What about me? because I feel like I've been locked out, uh, I would say, number one, check with a lawyer to see if you might be living in a state that has a look back window. And if not, then lobby your, your representatives to create one. Mm. I love that we're starting here because my goal with this conversation is to inform people of what the possibilities are that you are out here, that you exist, that you're here for them, and also to help equip them to recognize when they've even been abused. Because you and I share a common history, having gone to church, we are both intimately familiar with the rhetoric and toxic theology that keeps victims silent, the um, overwhelming um, inundation of men with um, egos that are just out of this world that are perpetuating these crimes and silencing people. So I want to get into all of that, beginning with why is it, Boz, and I know the answer to this, you are uniquely equipped, are you uniquely equipped to handle these cases? One of the facts that's so interesting being that you happen to be Billy Graham's grandson. So you are intimately familiar with church, church history, and this theology. Tell me more about that. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in a, in a Christian household. I would say it was evangelical. It wasn't, I wouldn't describe it as fundamentalist. Um, but yeah, I was, I am the grandson of, of Billy Graham. And, um, you know, I, I considered it a great privilege and honor of my life. I loved, I called him Daddy Bill. I uh, love Daddy Bill. Um, Daddy Bill, at least when I knew him as, uh, you know, starting the early 70s, um, he, uh, he was one of the most humble people I've ever met. Um, mm. And so I grew up in a world where, yeah, I would, became very familiar with evangelicalism. I became very familiar not only with the theology, but also with the culture of evangelicalism. And, you know, there are some things about that culture that are, are good. And there are some things that are really, really bad. And, um, and so that gave me, you know, even as I, and I wasn't really familiar with issues related to abuse growing up. And it wasn't until I became a prosecutor that I first encountered um, really at a, at a front row level, the, the horrors of child sexual abuse and sexual assault. And so ultimately that led me to start a unit in our uh, district attorney's office, a sexual crimes unit where I was a a chief prosecutor for that. And and one of the reasons I did that was because I saw so many prosecutors who were really uncomfortable with these types of cases because prosecutors like to win cases and get convictions because that's how they get promoted. Uh, And and I found so many of these 
abuse cases, sexual abuse cases, especially those involving children, prosecutors are really uncomfortable even filing on them. If they did file on them, they usually would plea them out pretty quickly. Um, and I thought, man, these are some of the worst offenses known to humankind. And you're giving the guy a slap on the wrist wow. if he gets charged at all. And so I said to my boss one day, I said, what if I give away all my, you know, possession cases and burglary cases and all that, and just give me and a few people in the office, just the sexual abuse cases, let's see what we can do with them. So anyway, so the combination of that, the experience of growing up in the evangelical world uh, and understanding how it works in many ways in the theology, combined with spending years as a, as a division chief of a sexual crime unit, um, really is a, is a unique combination. And I've really use that combination in my work now as a, as a lawyer representing survivors, because many of my cases are cases where my clients were abused within the church uh, or by a representative of the church. And so when the church comes up with some of their excuses or defenses, um, because of the world that I grew up in, I'm able to call them on it and to identify what's truthful and what's not. Yes. Oh my gosh. I'm so grateful for that. For me, I have a two-year-old son now and mm. a church or is one of the least safe places that I can imagine sending my son. I would be hyper vigilant if I had my son alone with anyone in that institution. And it's exactly for the reasons that you describe in a lot of your work. Um, I have you quoted on the Royce report as saying the most dangerous defenders are often born and raised in the church. Sure. Do you, uh, why do you find that to be true? Mm -hmm. Well, because a more often than not, they're loved and respected by the congregation and they, people feel like they know somebody if they've been born and raised in that church, mm -hmm. they feel like they know this person. So the more they know them, the more they trust them. And Combine that with the fact that that person, if they've been born and raised in that church, um, has a, a significant degree of knowledge with regard to the theology of that church. And they're able to twist that theology in very subtle, but also incredibly destructive ways in how they groom and ultimately abuse those uh, in their midst. So, yeah, I think, I, I think they're incredibly dangerous. I, I find the most difficult cases that I've had have been involving people either leaders in the church or people, long-term um, members of the church, where people just don't believe that they could commit such a crime. And so at the end of the day, what ends up happening is, and, and that you combine that with these perpetrators are most, just all, about all of them are narcissists. And so what right. they do is they know this. So what they'll do over time is they'll, they'll spin a narrative to the point where ultimately they get the church, the majority of the church believing that they're actually the victim and the victim and the victim's family, the actual victim and the victim's family are actually like the perpetrators of some type of injustice. And, mm. you know, more often than not that I, at least in my own experience, it's the, it's the real victim in their family that ends up on the outside of that church yeah. after coming forward and disclosing abuse. And that is absolutely ludicrous. I mean, the church should be the safest refuge for all people, especially the most vulnerable. And why, what I have found over and over and over again is that the church is the safest place for the perpetrators and the least safe place for the vulnerable. And that's, that's not the Jesus that I know. Yeah. And so just because you might call yourself a church doesn't make you one.
Absolutely. And I think something that people need to recognize if they're listening to this interview and they're finding themselves offended, like how dare you say this isn't a safe place or a refuge. I know my leaders. I trust these people. We have to recognize culturally and have to talk more openly about particularly childhood sexual abuse or sexual abuse of children, teens, because abusers are magnetic and charming. They don't wear black. They're not huddled in the corner. They don't look like Bond villains. They are the Larry Nassers who have 100% access to your children because they are magnetic, because everyone trusts them. This is a part of the manipulation. And furthermore, you said something so interesting in another interview about um, like, basically, you were saying, how can you know that if someone asked you, how do you know if you're in a safe church or how can you recognize where your church might not be safe? And you answered something to the effect of if someone has unchecked power, if they're presented as a conflated image, man and God, this is the voice of God coming through this individual, that they have theology that can't be questioned, The problem with that is that to me is the definition of evangelicalism and is the definition of a lot of these fundamental churches, fundamentalist churches, where they say, if you question my authority, you're questioning God. If you question my theology, well, then you're not reading your Bible hard enough. Like, I know the interpretation of this and there's no other interpretation. This is why so many of us have pivoted into deconstruction and Mm. even deconstruction is vilified by these demigod pastors because they don't want to lose their unchecked power. And they might even not realize that they're as villainous as they are, or they're as manipulative as they are. Elves have been taught that their voice can be conflated with God and that they are God within themselves and they're that representation. So all of that said, we have quite a beast to overcome in helping people in these congregations recognize that you still have every right to your autonomy for that ping in your spirit or in your intuition that says, I know everyone loves this pastor, but for some reason, I don't want to leave my child in their presence. Like, how do we give people permission to be like, we know you're told to blindly follow, but in the case of protecting yourself and the ones you love and your congregation, your fellow brothers and sisters, we cannot have an unchecked source of power. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, if you think about it, Brenda, think of, think of this. Um, I don't know another job in the world. Maybe there's one that does exist where somebody once a week is able to get up in front of a group of whether it's 200 or 20,000 people and speak uninterrupted for 30 minutes. If you're lucky 45, 50, if you're not so lucky, think about that. I mean, think about what that creates in somebody. I mean, even if you're the nicest person in the world, if you're doing that week in and week out, week in and week out, it's creating a, we are creating these, this, this type of leadership style where we place all of this power and authority, usually in the hands of one person, usually in the hands of a man who gets up and does this every week. And, and you combine that with so many people, the church today, they want community, they want fellowship. And so, so many of our churches, I, I was guilty of this years ago. I, one day I looked at my wife and said, do you realize that just about all of our activity, 
outside of our work is in church. I said, I don't think that's what, what Jesus intended. <laughs> and so, but, but that became our community, our friends and our people we saw two or three times a week. And, and so people are really nervous about losing community, especially when they have kids and their kids are ingrained in that community. And so when somebody goes, well, wait a minute, I've got a question, pastor. I'm not sure if I agree with what you said, or I've got concerns with the person who's serving in the nursery, or can you, can you give me a, a copy of the child protection policy of the church? And they get pushback. What they're really getting told is get back in line and shut up. And if you don't get back in line and shut up, What's going to end up happening is um, you're, we're going to lead you to the door. We're going to start telling people that you are divisive, that you gossip, that you're not for the, you know, uh, you know, not for the um, uh, unanimity of the, uh, of the spirit. And so you are now the problem. Yes. And it's amazing how oftentimes that works over and over again. So the person who's going, wait a second, I got a question, or I've got a concern, pretty soon, if they don't shut up and get back in line, and quite frankly, many of them do, because they don't want to lose that community. Uh, but those who don't find themselves on the outside. Now, when they come to me, I say, man, consider yourself blessed that you're on the outside of that community. You didn't need that. But that's easier said than done when you've spent years cultivating friendships. You're always told that this is a church family Mm -hmm. and we're going to do life together. We're going to do life together. As long as you're in agreement with us, that you don't have any significant disagreements with leadership. And that if you do, you might be able to express them, but then once you've expressed it, now you're supposed to trust the leaders to deal with what you've told them. And you need to be quiet and not talk to anybody else about it. As long as you play by those rules, welcome to our community. And uh, it's in those types of communities and those types of environments are environments that fuel abuse, not only, you know, child sexual abuse, the things that I'm dealing with, but all types of spiritual abuse, um, adult on adult abuse. And, um, and we, that's why we're seeing that so much in the more conservative evangelical church. And that's why so many people ultimately, I think, especially younger people are just leaving. They're walking out. Oh, They're finding community elsewhere. I think that's what that's what COVID has done in a in, in a large degree, and in, in with so many people inside the churches, it's forced them to find community elsewhere. And a lot of them are going, "Hey, I sort of like this community. This community is more authentic and genuine, and I can speak my mind, and and I don't feel controlled. So why would I go back here, unless I feel you know, unless I feel um, uh, guilted into it because it's what God would want me to do." Right. That's the problem. It's the conflation with God. It's telling you that these things are of God and not of these mere mortals that are actually manipulating you. And it's just reminding me of watching um, a speech or the sermon that Brian Houston of Hillsong Church did to address the allegations of his father's rampant sexual abuse of young boys and and we're talking about assaults full on and just watching his church rally around him and and give him accolades as though he's so brave and courageous to stand on the stage and be forthcoming about these things it is very disturbing to me because it's so little and it's so late and then you also watch the interview um between 
a journalist and one of the victims of Brian Houston's father. And this man is living a life that had been full of destruction, full of pain. He -hmm. is not at peace with himself. Why so often when we are told as Christians to take care of the least of these and to make sure that everyone is safe and protected, why do we choose the narrative that favors the pastor, that favors the leadership, and that just goes on believing there are some kind of heroes who are finally doing too little too late? We always, we tend to, to gravitate towards the narratives that make us more comfortable. And, and so the narrative that makes a lot of people feel more comfortable is that this, this leader didn't do that, that maybe this child or this, this reported victim has some mentally, you know, mental illness. And so therefore, you know, we don't, we're not accusing him of lying, but he's got issues. And so we're going to, and, and then when the pastors will spin that narrative, subtly sometimes sometimes not so subtly we go yes see that's right and and now we are and and that pastor ultimately has now shifted the spotlight away from himself and shifted the spotlight on well this problem this person has a problem we need to pray for him and we need to love him but you know basically he's a liar now they're not going to use that language but so and i think that you have that with the fact that in most of uh, American evangelicalism, at least that I know of, um, we've turned it into, we've turned church leaders and pastors into rock stars. Yes. I mean, look at, look what happened at, uh, what was the guy's name? Carl Lentz from Hillsong yeah. in New York. Um, you know, Carl Lentz was hanging around Justin Bieber and hanging around all these really, really famous people. And we know that, well, we'll never get a chance to hang around Justin Bieber, but oh my goodness, our pastor does. How cool is that? Now I want to get as close to our pastor as possible. I want to get in his inner circle. I dealt a lot with that with um, Bill Hybels at Willow Creek. Mm. Bill Hybels was, you know, Willow Creek is probably the preeminent mega church of the United States, one of the first mega churches. And Bill Hybels was like the rock star evangelical leader on so many levels. And it came, you know, surface that he was engaging in abusive conduct with female staff and others in the church for years. And nobody was saying anything about it because they were petrified. And he was the rock star. Who's going to believe me? Um, and, and it was interesting. And I learned through that is that, you know, he would go up to his, I think it was like a lake house every year and for like a week or two. And the, and the big talk amongst the staff was who was going to be in that inner circle, who would be invited to go up with Bill Hybels and his wife to their lake house for a week. I mean, that was like, that's what people were focused on. And I'm like, that is so, this is so messed up. Uh, it's so distorted. It has no reflection to the Jesus that I understand and know mm-hmm. um, because, but we've created that. And so that the, the problem with this, and especially with the, in the evangelical world, and that goes into the issue of how we, view men and women and value men and women and children is that if you're a female and you, you raise an issue with a male leader, whether it's sexual or anything else, um, you're already swimming upstream big time, even in 2022. And that's got to change. Now, the last thing I'll say is this about this is I give the conservative evangelical world a hard time because I see it so much there, but you know, Willow Creek, and Bill Hybels was were considered more progressive evangelicals. 
And what I learned in that process was that in a conservative world, the women are oftentimes vulnerable because they have no voice, they have no power. And so these, these perpetrators, these male leaders will abuse them and they have no voice. Um, but in the more progressive world, one of the things Bill Hybels did was he actually brought these, the way he accessed women and to abuse them was in his progressive theology, which was, I'm going to empower you as a woman to speak and to preach. And, and women came alongside of him and thought, man, this guy's wonderful. Look what he's doing, especially people coming out of that more conservative patriarchal world. And the problem was that, that he was just using a different tactic in order to access uh, his victims and to gain their trust and to keep them silent. Right. This is why education to me is so crucial because you brought up, for example, that a pastor might talk about someone's mental health crises and we have to pray for them and what people don't understand because they're not educated on the matter and we don't speak about it enough is that that is exactly the person that a predator will prey on. You don't go for the other fellow rock star in the church that can bring you down, you go for the, and not to call anybody weak, but if you are struggling with mental health, if you're at a small group and you're being really forthcoming about being really promiscuous or struggling with a sort of addiction or any of those things, it can become public information among the church and it can be used against you when you end up being victimized by this person. Mm -hmm. And that is terrifying for me. If you do see someone that is having mental health crises or addiction problems or any of these things that show a sign of being a really good candidate to be victimized by someone in a position of power, that to me would just validate what was saying that that the, right. what they were saying could be true. And that's not to say it couldn't happen in people of like positions sure. of power. Cause like you said, this progressive pastor was uplifting these women and putting them on pedestals and they were still being abused. Right. But what are, uh, I mean, real quick, I'll just tell you a case I dealt with a few years ago where a pastor and his wife, uh, got to know my clients. Uh, they became friends. The families became friends. They would hang out. You know, the family, my client's family thought it was sort of cool to be friends, so close to good friends with the pastor. And um, and during that course of friendship, uh, my clients opened up to that pastor and his wife, just like you would with any friendship. They became vulnerable. Right. They shared about the struggles in their marriage. They shared about the struggles in their family. And the pastor even then began sort of opening up a little bit about their vulnerabilities, which did what? It fueled my clients to open up even more because they're like, oh, he's opening up now. And fast forward, when my clients realized that their three-year-old daughter had been sexually victimized by the pastor while he was watching the kids, while they were going to marriage counseling, oh, we'll watch your kids. Mm -hmm. And when they stepped forward to disclose that, what happened? The pastor took all of that information and data that he had collected in this friendship and then twisted it and used it against them to try to discredit them. Wow. And, and it was so destructive. I don't, I don't even think that couple is still married. And so, yeah, very, very. And if you're not aware of how these people, how they act and, and, and these types of dynamics, you can easily fall prey to it. And so that doesn't mean that you just don't trust anybody and everybody in a church is a molester and all that. I'm not saying that at all. 
Uh, I think the vast majority of people in churches are, are decent, good people. They may not be in the most healthy environment, but that's their choice. But I think amidst that, you get you have people in there that are there for certain purposes, and especially those in leadership positions are given a much greater ability to access uh, not only children, um, but access information about people. I mean, you think about it in the Catholic Church, the priest in the church, especially in the confessional, that priest is an incredibly powerful position, not just because he represents God in the church, but because he sits in, in a confessional and hears everybody's shit all day long. And now he knows he's the one, he's like the hub of a wheel. He has all of that information. So when somebody says, well, wait a second, I don't agree with you or whatever. Uh, I think you, you know, my child says you've molested them. What does that pastor do? He pulls that information that he's collected and uses it to discredit. It happens all the time. Yeah. Ugh. I mean, unethical is, is not no, even a That's an understatement. Word yeah. For, yeah, understatement. Yeah. Um, I... Would like to get into some more specifics, if you don't mind, because I really want people to be able to recognize what has been done to them if they haven't already and how much they do deserve justice if they haven't recognized that as well. And then after that, we should also talk about the risk that they run in coming out with their abuse allegations, sure. because I have watched women, particularly in my experience, be demolished after coming out, losing family, losing community, being discredited in sure. 2021, 2020, we're talking sure. about happening right now, you know? Um, so first and foremost, like I talk so often and I've written a whole memoir about purity culture. Yeah. And my main thing is about emancipating people from sexual shame and fear that was given to us by the church because we often don't realize that that is another way we get primed to be victims of sexual abuse no. when we are told that our entire worth is in our quote unquote virginity and that if it is lost in some way that we bear some responsibility. That has been theologically stated in, in my most recent memory. I've heard a sermon about it in 2020 and I'm sure they're still occurring of like, if you dress a certain way, if you present yourself mm. a certain way, if you're even just willing to be sexually active with another member consensually in church, you can then be victimized and then sure. outwardly victim blamed as the person that invited that behavior. What are some other things that you've seen that are common threads that people fall into when either adults or young adults or children are being victimized by these people? Yeah. Theologically um, specifically. Yeah, you know, I have, you know, we have three daughters and, um, you know, we, we tried to instill in them from day one, the absolute opposite of what you've just shared. Thank you. Um, and, and I, we have to be intentional because I grew up in, in the evangelical world and my wife to some degree did as well. And so I had to, it took me time for us to think through it and process it and go, okay, wait a minute, we have to be intentional with our kids about this. And I remember telling all three of our girls, I said, listen, you should be able to run across the college campus completely naked, fall down drunk and pass out completely naked and not be sexually assaulted. Because if you get sexually assaulted, you play no zero responsibility for that crime. Um, now, I would share that with students. I used to teach. I don't know if you know this. I was a law professor at Liberty Law School for 12 years. I and heard that. I was like, oh, wow. We didn't get into that yet. But, 
But I that's used to my tell favorite my... cuckold story uh, of the century. Oh, oh <laughs> I didn't even know what that word was until that story surfaced. Um, but you know, I used to tell students that because because students coming in that coming out of a lot of the families that uh, that came to, to Liberty that that was so foreign to them because of exactly what you said. And it is this whole, this whole, and it, a lot of it deals with, goes back to the patriarchy, which is, you know, you, men in control, men in, in leadership positions, men, men having the voice, having the power. And so if a man engages in a sexual act with somebody, um, a non-consensual sexual act, was it really non-consensual? Because we're going to have to shift some of the blame or all of it to the victim, the female. Mm -hmm. And so what do we do with that? We go, well, it's how you were acting. It's what you were dressed like. It's what, you know, and, and pretty soon that you, you learn that long and you probably learned this growing up, but you learn that long enough and hear that often enough. And you begin to, you begin to believe it. And so when you do get sexually assaulted, in any situation, whether you were drinking, whether you were wearing a skirt that you might have been a little short or whatever, you don't say anything about it. You keep quiet because you are dealing with your own guilt and self-blame. And the worst thing about all that is that so many of these perpetrators know that. Yes. And they know they can get away with it over and over and over again because ultimately their victims don't have a voice. And when they do step forward and use their voice, so many within that community will reinforce the perpetrator's narrative of let's focus on what you were doing. Let's yes. focus on, let's focus on your own. I remember doing a, our investigation at um, Grace was doing an investigation at Bob Jones, which is a very fundamentalist college. And, you know, a student told us, I, I went, I went to this person, a counselor on campus. I disclosed how I'd been sexually abused, how I was really angry and that, you know, I didn't know what to do. And the response was, have you forgiven him? Oh. No, I haven't forgiven him. I want to kill him. Well, you know what? We need to shift away from him and let's talk about your own anger issues because you're really a bitter person. Oh my goodness. Like you've just taken a traumatized person and aggravated that trauma two or threefold because now you've placed the blame on them. The very fact that they are bad is, in my opinion, the fact that they're angry and pissed is actually a glimpse of, of God in them who says, I was wronged and, and, and a profound injustice was inflicted upon me. And I have the right to be angry and to call for accountability and justice. And when I'm told I shouldn't, and I cannot be angry, and I need to deal with my own anger, sin issues before we can deal with that, um, that, that shuts people out. It either shuts people down, and that's a vast majority, or people like yourself and others who go, I'm out of here. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and it's, and it takes them a long time to begin to begin to breathe new life, uh, outside of that type of very culture. And, and there's a lot of deconstructing that goes on with beliefs that have been instilled in them for years and years and years. Many of times they don't even realize that they've been instilled in them until years later, they're thinking they're still believing a certain way. They're going, wait a minute, that's wrong. And I have the freedom to say that's wrong and to call it, it wrong and not to believe that anymore. Yeah. You must know from your experience, though, that the stories that you just shared and the perspective you just shared is rare in my experience of a man and a, and a, a man that professes to be Christian, because the example you gave of a woman getting knocked out drunk, naked, 
there are just so many men in this culture, even women as well, who would come alongside the perpetrator in that moment and been like, well, there is some responsibility here on that woman. Because again, we aren't informed about enthusiastic consent. This is why I love those two words together. Because consent, tell me it's muddy. Tell me it confuses you. Fine. Add the word enthusiastic you're passed out. There's no such thing as enthusiasm there. Like it makes it more clear for me. Unfortunately, it feels necessary to have those words this day and age um, to get us out of these situations. But also, I mean, yeah, I don't know. It's just gotten me so curious about how we can actually make churches become these safe havens and these safe places. Because I am admittedly at a point in my life where, like I said, I would not take my son to any church that I know of. I have been to four churches that I attended regularly through my course of my Christian history. And at all four, I know situations of sexual assault and abuse that was covered up, mishandled, thrown away and not properly addressed. And one thing you talk about is bringing in the authorities and bringing in accountability because this is the whole monster of these organizations that we create. I wonder if there are parallels between the way corporate America behaves that we need to bring into church spaces. Because if someone says my boss sexually assaulted me, which frankly, is still new that you could even prosecute those sorts of things. When we look at Harvey Weinstein, et cetera, like the Me Too movement has definitely helped given victims the power to actually report these crimes and been taken seriously. But the church, not one that I know of, they don't have the appropriate checks and balances to keep people safe. They handle it internally. I went after a church in LA because they handled it so internally that they only spoke to other people in church and were like, did this happen? Do we think this happened? And then they dismissed it based on that. So what do we even do to start creating these places to be safe? I mean, bearing in mind that people also will still hold on to and gravitate toward the theology that says these men shouldn't be questioned because they are the ultimate authority. What do we do to protect people? Well, I think there are some things you can do. I mean, I, ultimately what I say is we have to shift the DNA of churches into, into a DNA that says that protecting and advocating and loving vulnerable people is part of who we are. And, and we will expend ourselves even to shutting the doors of our church for that purpose. Now, having said that, practically speaking, one of the things I love about Grace, which is the organization I started, um, is they're doing just, just that. What they're doing is, is they sort of approach this shift of cultures from two angles. One is uh, we have our uh, safeguarding uh, initiative, which is we go into churches and we work with them for anywhere from four to six months, and we educate and equip every demographic of that church from leadership all the way down to kids on these issues. We, we work with them in developing safeguarding policies and procedures. We don't just hand them a policy and say, use it. We want them to work through it and to, to own these things. It can't be part of your DNA if you don't own it. And we've seen during that process, leaders, sometimes we get a lot of pushback from leaders, but other times we have leaders who say, you know, when you, we didn't, I didn't want you to come. I didn't think we had anything to learn. I think we're handling things just fine. 
And now that you've been here, I realize I'm so glad you did come. Those are the glimpses of light. And then on the other end of the spectrum, what we do is, is organizations or churches where there is or there have been disclosures of abuse. Sometimes they're, you know, like you were saying, I mean, they should be reported to the authorities. But one of the things that a church should be doing, and you're seeing more and more do it, is say, well, wait a minute. Okay, this, this person was, let's just say, uh, uh, sexually victimized by our youth pastor. Um we need to have a third party come in and conduct an independent investigation or independent assessment to find out what really happened here. Who knew what, when, why, and uh, where at the church? Because we need to hold ourselves accountable. And we need to, A, hear the victim's voices, not just based on what the perpetrator did, but we failed. So the perpetrator committed a crime, but and it's very easy to just say, well, that's the perpetrator. No, no. 98% of the time that I've ever dealt with this, these types of cases, the institution has to take some responsibility as well. Absolutely. And those in, independent assessments, where Grace comes in with a team of investigators, they investigate, interview, and end up writing a report that a report that's not just given to the church, but a report that's given to the church and the survivors, the same report with recommendations saying, here's, here's where things failed. And here are our recommendations that you need to build from this point forward so this type of thing doesn't happen again. And so one of the things, even though I, I can be pretty cynical about the church, um, I've been encouraged that there seems to be more and more churches, especially with younger leaders, maybe the younger generation, uh, who seem to be getting this issue more than the older generation and seem to be reaching out to organizations like Grace saying, you know what? We used to think we were the experts in all things because we know the Bible and we're we're God's people. And um, so we thought we could handle this stuff. Well, the reality is we know that we can't. Mm -hmm. And so we need to help. We need help of outside experts. Now, sometimes the motivation is unclear. Sometimes the motivation is like, I want you to come in and help us, you know, change our culture. Primarily, if I'm being honest with you, because I don't want to be on the front page of the paper like that church was last week. So we're going to have you come in. And I'm like, listen, I'll take whatever motivation, but you should as a Christian be motivated by the fact that that children and all other people in your church are image bearers of Jesus and they are they are created by him and they are unique and beautiful and awesome and valuable and that is why we protect them. That's why we advocate for them. Um but we still got a long way to go. Uh, on that part. But so we are seeing some shifts and changes. So I think that's encouraging, but there's still so much of that stuff. I'll say one other thing, because I, I, I just thought about this that I see a lot. And that is when something has happened in the church, let's say 10 years ago, and the victim steps forward uh, and it, there's a new pastor there. It's the, the, the perpetrators somewhere else now, but the victim finally steps forward and says, 10 years ago, I was abused at this church. I have found that churches tend to respond to those situations better than where the person comes forward and says, the pastor who's currently there, that person sexually victimized me. I still see more often than not in those situations, the circling of the wagons because that person is still in power. Right. Where the, the situation happened 10 years ago, that person's not in power anymore. It's easy. It's like um, uh, Epstein, you know, he's dead. So everybody can step forward. Ravi Zacharias, a perfect example in the Christian world. You know, I was representing Ann Thompson when Ravi Zacharias was still alive and nobody wanted to believe her disclosure. Yeah. He dies, 
disclosures come forward, well, now he's not there anymore. So it's much easier for everybody to jump on the bandwagon going, oh yeah, we believe, and that's a terrible man. I, I've often wondered how much of how much of things would have been different had Ravi Zacharias not died, had, would have all this stuff surfaced and would the organization have admitted and acknowledged what had happened like it has since his passing? Don't know, but that's that's the real challenge for people is the power dynamics are so significant in churches and the power disparities are so significant in churches that those without power have very little voice. And I don't know if there's anything you can do to fix that other than to walk out. Yeah, I'm a big proponent of walking out. And I hate to be cynical about the Ravi situation, but I have observed people rallying around his theology and what good he did. And let's focus on the positive. And for me, I'm like, you cannot be perpetuating sexual violence against people and actually speaking a message that is of any valuable to me. Like that does not add up. That's just a personal opinion. But but it's not a, we're not, it's not a scale. That's what people want to do is like, well, but look all the good he did. So that outweighs the bad. I'm like, what really? I mean, is that how you really evaluate things? I mean, no, just acknowledge that he he was a scumbag who destroyed lives of vulnerable people and acknowledge that and and maybe convict yourself of not believing that sooner and to realize that people like him can do that. I know. I keep going back to the obstacle though because women will defend but they they men mostly and they will defend these people and their theology and the good things that they did based upon the shitty theology of well a woman is responsible in a way and you caused him to stumble and there's you know like i don't know how church is going to be safe until we burn purity culture down which is one of my main goals and missions of my personal life that's a whole other story so hopefully my work can help your work and vice versa You don't stop. That's important stuff. Yes, I will not be stopping. You don't stop either, please. No. Um, no. Let's see. I actually have so many more questions, but I know I have to let you go soon. I deeply appreciate not only this conversation, but this charge that you've taken in your life. I love the person that you are, the testimony that is your life. I'm sure, what did you call him? Old Billy? (laughs) Oh, no, Daddy Bill. Daddy Bill. Okay. He was old at the end of his life. Daddy Bill. I'll call him old Billy. You call him yeah. Daddy Bill. I'm yeah. sure he would be proud. Um, but, and, 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 you know, the thing is, um, you know, we're all, we're all messy. We're all imperfect. Uh, I love Daddy Bill to death. Um, and he was a huge uh, model for me, but he would be the first person to say that he, he was not a perfect model by any means. Mm. And, um, and some of his theology, I, you know, I was watching a documentary of him not long ago it was on PBS. So it was not done by, you know, my uncle, it was done by PBS. And, and I remember looking at my wife saying, I, you know, she knows how much I loved him. I said, but you know, I don't think I would have gotten along with the young Billy Graham. He was like really loud and seemed to be a bit arrogant. And like, I just, I don't, I don't know if I really like that at all. And I found it weird saying that about, about somebody I admired so much, but I just think we have to be try to be as truthful as we can with each other be, and and not try to paint something, you know, whether it's, it's abuse or whether it's a loved one, paint yeah. them with this, this brush of, 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 un, you know, something, somebody that they're not, or something that it's not. Yeah. Um, because we're all, I can speak, well, I'll speak for myself, but I'm messy too. And, 
Um, I know my kids, I pray they love me. I think they do, but they also know that I'm, I'm messy and not, I'm far from perfect. That's not an excuse for, for abusive conduct. Um, but it's just acknowledging that it's okay in the Christian world to acknowledge that we're, we're messy and quit quit buying into this showcase mentality Christianity, that if we're Christians, we have to look better, we have to be better, because all that does is fuel hypocrisy, because we're not, but we portray something and we're not, and Christians are the only ones that believe it, because the world's all looking at us going, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites, (laughs) but we are in there believing it, because God forbid, if we don't believe it, somehow our faith comes shattering apart, which is ridiculous. Well, this is a perfect segue into my last two questions. The first being, um, you know, you're talking about this facade that we create. It's like having the the best house on the block with the perfectly manicured lawn, but it's a mess inside and no one wants to admit that. What sort of advice or even just thoughts would you plant in the head of people that are really involved in their church that are suspecting abuse or have encountered a moment where someone is crying out that they have been abused? Because I don't want to minimize the reality that, like you said, the whole institution could fall. Like I just listened to the podcast, um, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill with Mark Driscoll. Mark Driscoll was put up as such a golden calf in that, uh, that atmosphere, and he was the church. They were synonymous. It was his, and it fell with him. So we're talking about people's livelihoods, people's families, people's connections. So how do we get people in a headspace to be poised and ready to react appropriately to accusations when they might know damn well that they could lose what they have. They could lose that manicured lawn on the block. Well, if you're a Christian in that context, you have to believe, you should believe that none of this belongs to you. So yeah, I have all this. I want to hold on to it. So I'm going to sacrifice the very heart of the of the, the, the teachings and life of Jesus so I can hold on to this. And more often than not, you're holding on to some degree of power. Um, and so what I would tell people in a church, if you see something or you see somebody that causes you concern, if your antenna goes up, listen to it. Listen to it. Even if you have a gut about something or somebody that you've seen, what happens I see in churches oftentimes is somebody will see something that makes them a little uncomfortable but they will, before, before time has run out, you know, within even before the end of the day, they've already convinced themselves that what they saw really wasn't what they saw. And they actually feel guilty for thinking mm-hmm. that what they saw might've been wrong. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying, no, don't let, don't allow, if you're heavily involved with the church, maybe that, maybe that concern that has come to your mind is your conscience. Maybe it's the Holy spirit that's, that's urging you to say something. And then, you know what? You say something. Go to the right channels. Your church should have the right channels to go who you go, who you speak to about these types of things. Don't go immediately to Facebook and Twitter. Um, go to go to the right channels, give them the opportunity to address it and and see how they respond to it. When you when you disclose it, whatever you experienced or saw that concerns you, how did they respond? Did they welcome it? Did they say they were gonna? you know, did they spend time with you? Did they say they're going to circle back and give you an update of what's going on? Or, or did they treat you as more of a, a problem? Like, why did you bring this to our attention? Or this, thank you for bringing this to our attention. You need to trust us. We'll take care of this. 
And when you circle back and say, well, what did you do? You just need to trust us. That's an unhealthy, unsafe environment. If you continue to, if you, if you encounter that type of environment, my, after doing this for 30 years, my recommendation to you is not to try to fight and change that culture, get out of it because you will, spend, yep, you will expend all your energies trying to change and shift that culture only to be vilified and lose community anyway. So get out, just say, you know what, not a safe place and I'm out of here. And it's okay. People need to remember that church is not a prison sentence. You can leave. Like you are not stuck in your church. You can walk out and never go back again. And I think too many people don't realize that. And they need to be given the permission to go, yeah, I can go. And you know what? I will form community outside this church. And that community will probably be more genuine and more loving than what I've experienced oftentimes inside the church. Yeah. And I hope everyone will recognize too that the theology that we're spoon fed by these manipulative institutions says the exact opposite. Don't trust your heart. It's deceitful. Don't trust your intuition. It's wrong. Trust me. I'm the voice of God. You can't leave. You'll go to hell if you don't go to church every Sunday. Just recognize it. If you're hearing those messages, you do not have to stay in that environment. Just get out. Unsafe. Yes. Just get out. And it's not God. Believe me. So last question, very important to me because I have used my channel to help alleged victims come out and tell their stories. I have come to churches publicly and called them out for mishandling of abuse allegations. And the thing I have seen time and time again is the victim loses oftentimes their entire family, that church community. People are gaslit into believing that they are crazy, that they are liars. They are outed on social media publicly as bad people. I, Boz, very sadly to say, have not seen it go well in this classic sense for a victim. Like they weren't embraced immediately. They didn't find justice and everything's great and they lived happily ever after. I will say what I have seen is tenacity and enormity of human growth and spiritual growth and the discovery of true community and people rallying around them that really love them. Oftentimes they'll find it in the queer community or in communities or with atheists or people of varying beliefs that are willing to listen to them and know what it's like to lose community themselves. So to encourage everybody, there is a happy ending from what I have seen, but the loss is enormous from Mm. what I have seen as well. So what would you say to people that are considering this, that are considering stepping out and saying, Hey, this happened to me. I, I feel audacious saying this because I haven't experienced it myself, but I do feel that we should consider there are other victims, there are future victims that could could appear if you don't say anything, but oh my God, the weight and the gravity that puts on the victim, Sure, I can understand why they wouldn't want to do it. So what would you say about well, all of that? I think, you know, whether a survivor steps forward and discloses is, is a really personal decision for them and it has to be in their timing and, and in their way. And sometimes they decide they don't ever want to do it. And I am respectful of that. But what I want to do in even having conversations with those individuals is to find out 
What are the reasons why you've decided not to? And oftentimes they're like you said, it's just too much. It's too much for me uh, because I know what's going to happen. And sometimes they're right. But what I try to help those individuals understand is, well, it doesn't have to be that way because you don't have to walk this journey alone. So I think one of the biggest pieces of advice I would say to somebody who's considering it is don't do this alone. Mm. You, you will find people. There are people in your life who you will share this with that will never speak to you again. And then there are going to be people in your life who you share this with who will want to walk with you every step of the way. And if those people don't exist in your life, they exist out there. Mm. I've I found clients who have found the greatest amount of support in a Facebook group or online in some other type of, 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 of um, online community because they're out there. So don't feel like you're alone and isolated. You have to do this with them. And then, and then not only don't do it alone, but get the assistance of somebody who, who's dealt with this type of stuff before to help can walk you through it. A lot of survivors contact me not to do quote unquote legal work, but it's to help them what do I do? You know, for example, somebody connected me with, with me last month who said, I, this previous youth pastor did this to me. I feel like I want to step forward, but I also know that it's going to be tremendously painful to do that. Can you help me navigate this way forward? And I did. We worked together uh, for, for weeks and weeks as they navigated forward. So yeah, don't do it alone. Get at least one person to walk this with this journey with you. But also there are people out there, and I'm not just saying myself, there are other people out there as well, who you could reach out to, to help give you the necessary consultation because they've dealt with this many, many times before, and they can help guide and direct you along the way. Um, and I think that at the end of the day, it's going to be painful, but once you bring darkness to light, uh, I have found that that is a tremendous uh, source of healing for survivors. Yeah. And to know that don't think of this six months from now, think about this six years from now. Mm-hmm. And to know that, yeah, I brought it to light and it was painful and I was I, I lost my community. I maybe lost my friends. Maybe I lost my family. But now that I look back six years later and look back, I feel like I've, I have new life breathed into me mm-hmm. and I have new community and new family. And, and I'm a, in a much healthier spot today than I was six years ago. So it's hard. It's it's hard work. But I, I guess the last thing I'll say, because I hear this a lot from, from victims who've talked to prosecutors and even lawyers, who prosecutors are notorious for this. They'll get a, they'll get a victim in a room and say, listen, we need to plea this case out. Instead of him going to prison for 20 years, let's offer him three years prison. Well, why? Well, let me just tell you, this is going to be a hard case and it's going to be really difficult on you. And then they're going to cross-examine you and make your life miserable. And and they scare the victim into agreeing to this plea offer, mostly because they're too lazy to take the case to trial, where the victim's like, oh my goodness, okay, I don't, who wants that? And what what I try to do with my clients and I try to do it as a prosecutor is, yeah, it's going to be hard, but you got this. You got this. You've survived the worst of the trauma in your life, which is it was the abuse. This you're going to with the right help and those the right people around you. You've got this. And I want to help empower you to come go forward and bring this darkness to light and not let the perpetrator win yet again. Because when you bring this secret out in the open, perpetrator loses. Even if you get a not guilty, 
even if you don't get a dime from a jury in a civil case, the perpetrator loses because you've taken this dark, disgusting secret that has been the fuel of this person's conduct for oftentimes decades, and you've brought it out into the open. Um, so yeah, and it's a very long answer to your short question, but yeah, this there don't my my encouragement to most survivors would be if you it's a personal decision, and and we need to respect whatever decision you make. Um, but really think through if your decision is based primarily on fear, uh, talk to somebody first before you make that final decision. Mm. Beautifully put. And I'm so grateful that you said that because I feel like even in cinema, the the line that comes out of a lawyer's mouth is always like, it's hard, it's not worth right, it. Yeah. And yeah, to tell someone you have the strength, you do have the power. And I love what you said too about the darkness, because that is the biblical principle, obviously, that darkness mm-hmm. out into light, that is where justice lies. And I like having the idea of telling people to have kind of a, a loose hand on what justice will be, because it won't always be a conviction. No. It won't always be a monetary no. reward. But the true justice is that the darkness is in the light and, no. and that darkness doesn't have to fester inside of you anymore. Like the darkness, it festers inside yeah. of you. And when you pull it all out and look at it and have everyone else look at it, it no longer has that power over you as the victim from what I've heard. <laughs> well, you know, and, I'll, and I, 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 can, I can close with my experience with a client. Her name is Amelia. Yeah. And Amelia and her brother were years ago when they were little uh, members of a small Pentecostal church. Uh, I think they were like 50 members. Um, fast forward, it was discovered because uh, Amelia fin- came forward and her brother did too, that they were both sexually victimized by two different people at that church. Now think about this, a brother and a sister, both sexually victimized as children by two separate people in a church of 50 people. <laughs> um, and Amelia made the decision, um, you know, a year, almost two years ago to, to do something about it. And so in New York, they had that window. So she took advantage of the window and I had the privilege of representing her and and, you know, she would say, you know, her deposition was almost two days long. It was grueling. I mean, I can't even begin to describe how difficult it was on so many levels. And she left that deposition so deflated and so exhausted and so like, should I even have done this? And she did a great job. Fast forward four or five months, we were able to, because of the job she did, we were able to settle the case. And, and you know, she, she texts me the next morning. She goes, the feeling I have today after the settlement is so 180 degrees different than the way I felt after that deposition. I feel empowered today. I feel strengthened. I feel that there's hope because I feel like I held them accountable. And, and that was what it was all about for me from day one. And so, yeah, she would say, yeah, the journey was difficult, but the end of the journey for her And she didn't get $10 million and all that, but the end of the journey for her, she said, absolutely was worth it. And she was able now to press forward with her life in a much different way than she was able to prior to stepping forward. Um, So yeah, was it difficult? Yes. Did Did we walk with her through that every step of the way? Hell yeah. And at the end of the day, she looked back and said, yeah, I'm glad I did it. 
Beautiful, Buzz. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for everything that you do. Please tell us all how people can find you, get connected to you. Yeah. They just go to my website. It's BozLawPA, B-O-Z-L-A-W-P-A.com. Um, if they uh, want to learn more about the work I do, or if there's somebody that is thinking about potentially talking to a lawyer about what happened to them, uh, go to that website. There's even a place you can go and, and answer some questions, and one of our um, intake specialists will uh, be in touch with them very shortly thereafter. And uh, at least at the end of the day, Brenda, what I share with, with clients is, is at least make an informed decision. So even if you decide you don't want to move forward with a lawsuit, at least know what your options are. And then you can make the decision, no, I don't want to do it. And so if they contact me, we can have those conversations so that they can ultimately make a decision. Yes, I want to move forward or no, I don't. But they can always look back, even if they decided not to and said, and say, tell themselves, I had all the information I needed to make an informed decision. and I made the right decision. That's beautiful. I love that. Well, thanks for doing what you're doing as well. Thank you. Important. Yeah, keep it up. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you to everyone who made it to the end of this conversation. We love you all so much. God bless.